Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. We are in a series that I've entitled Supernatural. We are now in part five. Uh, this time I'm going to talk a little bit about cosmic geography. First, as always, we'll have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son and thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, Lord. I ask that your Holy Spirit guide my teaching, which is in reality your teaching, Lord. I do believe that. And I ask the Holy, your Holy Spirit to infill the listeners, that they might come to know and understand all that has anything to do with the supernaturalness of your word. Father, I ask you to be with them, to open all of our hearts, mind, soul, spirit, and body to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've been talking a lot about the supernaturalness of the Bible, and we're going to continue doing that. You know, God foresaw the fall of Adam, and he was ready with a plan to rectify it. He also knew we would be born sinners, and we were going to fail. And we fail a lot. If we let's just be honest with ourselves. I know I did, and I still do, and I always will. But he didn't predestine those failures. When we sin, we need to own our sin because we sin because we choose to sin. We can't say God willed it or that we had no choice because it was predestined. But God loved us. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 to 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us despite knowing what we would do. He not only gave us the freedom to choose, the freedom to sin, he gave us the freedom to believe the gospel and to live for Jesus. God also knows, and we all know it by experience, bad things happen to people, even to Christians. Evil is in the world because people and divine beings have the freedom to do evil. Our God isn't a twisted deity who predestines awful things or who needs horrible crimes and sins to happen so some greater plan of his works out well. God doesn't need evil, period. His plans are going to move forward despite it, overcoming it, and ultimately judging it. And you might ask, well, why doesn't God just do something now? Why doesn't he eliminate evil right now? Well, here's a reason. For God to eliminate evil, he'd have to eliminate his imagers, human and divine, who are not perfect like he is. That would solve the problem of evil, but it would also mean that God's original idea to create other divine agents and human beings to live and rule with him was a huge mistake. And I truly trust that you recognize that God doesn't make mistakes. Now we might also wish that God had never given humans freedom. But where would, be, where would we be then? In choosing to give us freedom, God also chose not to make us mindless slaves. Now that's the alternative to having free will. Because freedom is an attribute we share with God. Without it, we couldn't actually be imagers of God. He made us like himself. And that wasn't a mistake either. God loved the idea of humanity too much 
to make the alternative decision. So he devised a means to, after evil entered the world, redeem humanity, renew Eden, and wipe away every tear. That's Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Now, we're in the midst of looking at the long war against God. God has a battle strategy, though. But the situation is going to get worse before God makes his first move. The divine transgressions we looked at previously had something in common. They were all supernatural rebellions aimed at stopping God's plan for humanity and a restoration of, of his rule. But in this session, we're going to look at another rebellion. One that originated with people. This rebellion produced a predicament that we're all still part of, and it involves supernatural beings. Now, the struggle for God's restoration strategy took a turn for the worse that only the return of Jesus will finally resolve. Now, turn over to, uh, if you look in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, the story of the Tower of, of Babel is simultaneously one of the best known and the least understood accounts in the, in the Bible. You know, children learn about it in Sunday school as the time when God confused earth's human languages. And this is what it says. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and, and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So, as we English speakers like to talk about it, that's the story of the Tower of Babel, or Babel in Hebrew. After the flood, God repeated the command he'd given to Adam and Eve to cover the earth. Now, he was trying to kickstart the spread of his ruling influence throughout humanity. But again, one more time, it just didn't work. People refused. With rebellion in their hearts, they had a better idea, or so they thought. They decided to build a tower, according to Genesis 11, verse 4, to avoid being scattered. You know, the logic here seems odd, because... 
you know, an, an amazing tower would surely make them famous, as it talks about in Genesis there in verse 4. But how would that prevent scattering across the earth? Well, the answer to that question lies in the tower. Now, Bible scholars and archaeologists know that ancient Babylon and cities around it built towers called ziggurats. Now, the purpose of a ziggurat was to provide a place where people could meet the gods. They were temples. You know, rather than make the world like Eden and spread the knowledge and rule of God everywhere, the people wanted to bring God down at one spot. But that wasn't God's plan, and he wasn't pleased. So he said to the members of his council, Let us go down and mix up their language. Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. God did so, and humanity was separated and scattered. Now, the, This incident explains how the nations listed in Genesis chapter 10 came to be. Now, that's the story most Christians know. Now, for the other one that you probably don't know. Because Genesis 11 isn't the only description of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 8 and 9 describes it this way. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, some Bible translations have that as sons of Israel rather than sons of God in that very first sentence. But Israel didn't exist at the time of the Tower of Babel, you know, God only called Abram after Babel over in Genesis chapter 12, which is the next chapter. So sons of Israel can't be right. And sons of God is the terminology found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are, by the way, the oldest manuscripts of the, of the Old Testament that we actually have. And the wording is important here. When God divided up the nations... When he confused their speech, they were divided among the sons of God. Now what that means is that God allotted the nations to members of his divine council. That is the Bible's explanation of why other nations came to worship other gods. Until Babel, God wanted a relationship with all of humanity. But the rebellion at Babel changed that. God decided to let members of his divine council govern the other nations. Now, to recap everything, God had judged humanity. But even after the flood, people would not resume the kingdom plan he had begun in Eden. So God went in another direction and decided to create a new nation. His portion, as Deuteronomy 32 verse 9 says, and that would be Israel. And he, did, he did that beginning with the call of Abram in Genesis 12, which is the very next chapter after the Tower of Babel story.
how God's allotment of the nations to other gods frames the entire Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is about the God of Israel and his people, the Israelites, in conflict and that they are pictured always pretty much in, con in conflict with the gods of the other nations and the people who live in them. Now that wasn't God's original intention. What he did at Babel to the nations was a judgment, but God never intended that the nations would be forever forsaken. You know, when God made his covenant with Abram, he made clear in Genesis 12, 3, all the families on earth will be blessed through Abram and his offspring. God was planning to bring the nations, see, God's planning to bring the nations back into his family at some point in time. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, he knew all this. In his sermon to the pagan philosophers in Athens over in Acts chapter 17, you know, he said, Through Moses God had warned his own people not to worship the host of heaven, which is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 19 and 20. Now the host of heaven is a label found elsewhere for the members of the divine council. By, you can see that looking at 1 Kings 22.19. Acts 17 verses 26-27 makes it clear that God's purpose was that somehow the nations would still seek after him. But the gods who had been set over the nations interfered with the plan in two ways. Now, if you turn over to Psalm, uh, Psalm 82, we'll get some insight. Now, I'm going to read the, the title of that psalm through verse 8, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, wicked Selah? God gave justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, You are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So in, here in verse 1 of Psalm 82, God has assembled the gods of the council. Now the full psalm is going to tell us why. The gods of the nations had ruled those nations unjustly, in ways that were contrary to the true God's wishes and principles of justice. And God indicted them as soon as the meeting began. The sentence that says, How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? In verse 2, is God talking to the gods of the council. After hammering them for two more verses on their injustice, the Lord describes... <clears throat> After hamming them for two more verses on their injustice, the Lord describes how the gods failed to help the nations walking in darkness find the way back to the true God. 
you know, verse 5. But those oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant, they wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. Sadly, the Israelites also wound up worshiping the gods not allotted to them. Deuteronomy 29:26. You can also see Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. But they wound up worshiping the gods not allotted to them instead of seeking the true God. And God's reaction is swift and harsh in Psalm 82 again, verses 6 and 7. I say, you are gods. You are all children of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Now, there in verse 7, you know, the gods are going to lose their immortality and die like men. Now, we know from other passages that the judgment God is talking about there is associated with the end times. You can refer to that in Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 4. At the end of Psalm 82, the writer hopes for the day when God will finally reclaim the nations as his inheritance. And as we're going to see later, he's going to get his wish fulfilled in the New Testament. And because of the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, geography in the Bible is cosmic. Ground is either holy, meaning it's dedicated to Yahweh, or it is the domain of another god, little g. This worldview is reflected in many places in the Bible. For instance, in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel refers to foreign nations being ruled by divine princes. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 and verses 20 to 21. Another example is when David was running from King Saul. You know, he was forced out of Israel into Philistine territory. So over in 1 Samuel 26, 19, David cried out, They have driven me out from the Lord's land to a country where I can only worship foreign gods. Uh, David wasn't switching gods. He also wasn't denying that God was present everywhere. But Israel was holy ground, the place that belonged to the true God. David is stuck in the domain of another god, little G. Now, my favorite Old Testament story that makes this point is over in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a captain in the Syrian army. And you maybe know this story. He was also a leper. After he followed Elisha's instructions to watch him, wash himself seven times in the Jordan River, he was miraculously healed of leprosy. So Naaman told Elisha and Ezekiel, I mean in 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 15 I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now the prophet is Elisha wouldn't take payment. So Naaman humbly asked if he could load a mule with dirt to take home with him. But dirt? Why ask for dirt? Because that dirt came from land that belonged to Israel's God. It was holy. Now, it's no accident we see the same kind of thinking in the New Testament. Paul uses a range of terms for hostile divine beings. He calls them rulers, authorities, powers, and thrones. 
That's in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3. It's also in Colossians chapter 1. What do those terms, rulers, authorities, powers, and thrones, what do they all have in common? They were all well-known terms used to describe geographic rulership. And then the Apostle Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthian church to address some situations he heard about. In the first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, he told church leaders to expel a man who was living in unrepentant sexual sin. And in verse 5 he says, Curiously, he wrote they were to, to deliver this man to Satan. How do you do that? How does that make any sense? You know, Paul's statement makes sense only against the background of the cosmic geographical worldview of the Old Testament. See, in Old Testament theology, Yahweh's portion was in Israel and the land he was giving the Israelites, the land of Canaan, what we know as Israel. His presence sanctified the ground. It made it holy. That's what sanctification means, to make holy. Initially, the presence of Yahweh resided in the in the tabernacle. When the Israelites rested as they were traveling in the Sinai desert and set up camp, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the center of the encampment, marking Israel's camp as holy ground. Later, after Israel took up residence in Canaan, Yahweh's presence was in the temple, sanctifying the promised land as holy ground. Yahweh and his people were at home. But today, the presence of Yahweh indwells believers. We are the temple of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6.19, 2 Corinthians 6.16, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. That means believers, the body of Christ, are the new people of God. A new Israel adopted into Israel, into the, what we call the Jewish nation. Paul makes that explicitly clear in Galatians 3. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, and verses 26 through 29. Now, since the places where believers are gathered is holy ground, sin must be expelled. Just as the ground around the Israelite camp and the surrounding nations under the dominion of other gods were conceived of as unholy ground, so in New Testament times and now the world was unholy ground. That's why we have Paul's command to expel an unrepentant believer back into the world. Deliver him to Satan, 
the world is the domain of Satan. See, to be expelled from the church was to be put back into unholy territory. And that's where sin belonged. The cosmic geography that's the result of God's judgment of the nations at Babel is the backdrop for Israel's struggle. It also sets the stage for the gospel. The good news of Jesus' work on the cross is that the people of God are no longer only Jews, but now includes all who believe in Jesus. That's Galatians chapter 3, as we just went over. As the disciples will go out into the world, the domain of Satan is transformed into God's territory. The kingdom of God advances, regaining control of the nations. Now the lesson is that this world is not our home. Darkness has permeated the globe. Unbelievers are essentially hostages of spiritual forces. They need the they need the gospel to be set free. And don't forget, it is the gospel that is our weapon. We are not authorized to confront principalities and powers directly. There is no spiritual gift to that effect handed down to us by the apostles. But the faithful dispensing of the gospel will turn the tide. Now the Great Commission is a spiritual battle plan. And we're going to learn more about that in sessions that are yet to come. Another lesson is that we need to view every congregation of true believers as holy ground. External appearances, buildings, the size of the congregation, are of absolutely no concern to God. What matters is that where two or three are gathered, Jesus is in their midst. Matthew chapter 18 verse 20. The space is sacred. Every congregation, no matter how small or unknown, is on the front lines of a spiritual war. Every church has the same task. The powers of darkness will not prevail. Now we're going to revisit the idea of cosmic geography when we get to Jesus' ministry. But for now, the battle lines have been drawn. The nations of the world have been judged and disinherited by God. It's time for God to start over and carve out his own portion and people. But first, we're going to back up and talk about the flood and the strange events of Genesis chapter 6 that caused God to send the flood. And we're going to do that next time. We've covered enough ground for today. Thank you for listening. This is The Perfect Puzzle.